So first, a, a guided reflection that will um, bring us all each back in touch with some of this material. And if you were exploring in the last week, this may bring back some memories of your exploration. But in any case, we can explore it freshly right now. So bring to mind a situation in which you find yourself um, in opposition to another person in a kind of a, a conflict in which the other person seems to be uh, an opponent or even an enemy. And it needn't be the most um, difficult opposition you find. It could be the best actually for the purposes of today um, would be a moderately difficult conflict. Mildly or moderately difficult. Is is it okay? Sounds a little bit, something seems a little distorted. Yeah. So reflect on that relationship. You might bring to mind images of the situation. If there was an interaction or several interactions, you can bring those to mind. And if you're not sure which one to choose, just choose one and, and stay with that. And typically, this would be a conflict in which you feel, you may feel that you're acting well or correctly, that you're in a sense the good one or the righteous one, and the other person may be seen to be opposed, or it may take a little bit different form. So get a sense of what you feel. Get a sense of your emotions. What are your thoughts? How do you feel in your body? Try to bring the lived experience of what it's like to be in this kind of opposition. You might also reflect on how you've tried to act skillfully, what's been helpful, what hasn't been. So my intention today is to explore this further. Last week we explored uh, particularly the first uh, five steps in this six-step set of practices. And my intention today is to review somewhat the where we were last time, but then go on to talk particularly about how we might work more interactively. And so the, the, the intention is to give us some further perspective, principles, and practices with which to work with the, mm, the dualistic oppositions that we have in our lives, the extent to which we form opponents or enemies or they form us, and the extent to which we have conflicts. And this could be with people who are Um, quite close to us, um, even family members or friends. It could be um, co-workers. It also could be public persons that you, you know, it could be politicians that you you find yourself feeling very much opposed to. Um, No names named (laughs) at the moment. And, And so the intention is how do we bring 
is to bring our sense of practice into the situation. Sometimes when we're in these oppositions, no matter what our spiritual practice is, we, it sometimes feels like it goes out the window. Does anyone have that experience? <laughs> uh, you know, say, yes, I go to Spirit Rock, and then, and then you know, and... But, and that's, that's actually okay. It's sometimes, um, now if it permanently stays out the window, that could be a problem, but it's okay to go out the window oneself and retrieve it <laughs> and, and bring it back. And the, what, what's particularly interesting about this work with um, opponents or enemies is that I think it really calls forth a kind of new integration that, that stretches our sense of practice. The primary emphasis that we have if we come to Spirit Rock is on the internal practice. It's on mindfulness, developing loving kindness, on, in a way, transforming ourselves. Now, historically, the Buddha did give a lot of emphasis to the development of community and the um, and guidelines for how we might interact. In the monastic communities, there are certain procedures for working with conflicts, but it seems clear that a primary emphasis has been on the inner work that we do. What's interesting about this um, sense of working with opponents and enemies is that it gives us a chance to do both the inner work and try to find skillful, as it were, outer ways of working with the situation. And so, to me, this is a very exciting kind of synthesis that we don't say, well, I'm either going to do the inner work and forget about the outer or, you know, as is common in our culture, we try to make things work externally without doing the inner work. And this is rather pointing to what would it look like to do both inner work and then also be skillful in terms of how one speaks, how one works with conflicts, how one communicates, and so forth, how one works with, with um, difficult situations. And to me, this is what we'll be exploring primarily in terms here, in terms of more interpersonal relationships, are exactly the kind of tools and perspectives and practices which could go also be extended into um, maybe the life of communities, organizations, and even the larger society. That something like these principles are something that, you know, when I was working on this book on, on um, connecting inner work and how we, how we work to transform communities in the world, it really seems like what's being called forth is this uh, connection of the inner work and skill in in acting in the world. You know, uh, I I think I've talked a few times last July, there was a a conference in Berkeley that I probably talked about a few times called Spiritual Activism. And it had an overflow crowd. They had to turn people away after 1,500 people came. You know? And so there's this hunger for how do we respond to situations, but how do we, as it were, bring our inner work into it, into the situation. So that's, to me, that's the framing of this work. And so what I'd like to do is briefly, fairly briefly, review what we covered last time. And I, I realize there's some people who weren't here last time. How many people were not here last time? Uh, so it's a lot. So the, the people who were here, who are, who are not, who were here last time, who are not here, they're out doing their work, either they got further involved with conflicts. <laughs> we'll, we'll have to see. So what I'd like to do is to review that inner work and then put a little more emphasis into a few ways to, to work more skillfully, as it were, more externally. Um, so, and I, as I mentioned last time, a lot of the laboratory for my own exploration of this, and this is my own my own model. I didn't get this from anyone. I just developed it out of my own experience primarily, and hopefully it can be helpful. But that uh, the laboratory for a lot of my learning was an, was an extended experience I had about uh, 10 years ago with, um, that took two years in which I was interacting with a very difficult for me um, boss. And it was, I, I, I camouflaged the situation and said that it was, I was working with a social change organization in Oakland. That's not entirely true. But that's that's the um, for the sake of both innocent and guilty. That's the that's the camouflaging I will do. So I was interacting with this guy who was the head of the organization, and it was really difficult for me to interact with him. And yet I really needed to. And I was in this connection for two years, and I was um, finding that he didn't listen to me very much, 
He was somewhat authoritarian, I thought. He was physically quite big and blustery, which had a role. <laughs> and, um, and there were some other people involved too, but I, there I was. I was trying to bring my best practice into the situation, and I found that I was getting triggered, that I was becoming quite reactive. When he didn't listen to me, I, would, I found uh, that I would basically withdraw emotionally, and yet I was still in the meeting. So I was still interacting, but I was kind of, I didn't quite know what to do. It didn't seem very possible for me to actually talk directly with him. You know, maybe now I would take that tack a little more quickly. But at that time, my efforts did not seem very successful. So what's interesting about this approach with opponents or enemies is that the ideal situation that we might have, which might be with a partner or with a friend or maybe in in a community like Spirit Rock, the ideal situation is that if we had a difficulty, and we always have difficulties with some people, right? That if we had a difficulty, ideally, we would bring together both the inner work and we would have shared agreements about doing, the, as it were, the outer work together. In other words, we would find ways, for example, to speak with each other in a more skillful way. We would be, if we were in a community like Spirit Rock, we might both make a commitment to, let's say, working with the principles of wise speech. We might, as has been done in some uh, Buddhist monasteries, we might take on the practice of the discipline of nonviolent communication, which has actually been done in several Buddhist monasteries. They were finding, even though they did all this inner practice, they were still getting on each other's nerves. <laughs> which is, I think it's, it's great. It's great to hear these reports. You might get a sense every month in Anyone who's not been much to a monastery or lived in one, you might think, well, it's just this wonderful place. Everyone's just harmonious. <laughs> and they were having some awful feuds. I guess this was the first, one of the experiences took place in England. And, and maybe they were, you know, I don't know. I don't know what happens when you add being a, a monk or nun to a little bit of, um, you know, upper class reserve or whatever. But anyhow, British Reserve. But anyway, the combination was such that they found, they said, help, we are, <laughs> and they brought in these tools. So ideally, ideally, we would be using uh, both our own, everyone would be doing inner work, and everyone would have an agreement about doing outer work together. You know, that, and then, and if we're in a community where that's possible, that is fantastic, right? Or if we're in a relationship, close relationship, where we say, where we actually talk together quite reflectively and say, what should we do about our conflicts? You know, how can we bring our deeper principles to work constructively with our conflicts and actually to learn from them? And, and for many of us, that could be a, uh, even, that could be a, a leap because you know, there are many of us uh, have tended to be maybe more avoidant of conflict. I don't know whether such people are drawn to Buddhist meditation more. But I remember reading... The, the work of a, the, the primary researcher on intimate relationships, uh, John Gottman, who had done the most extensive work. He was from the University of Washington. And he had set up what he called the Love Lab at the University of Washington, where he had couples um, stay in this uh, apartment for weekends together. And they, they would, were completely videotaped. And they even had electrodes hooked up at times so they could measure, you know, galvanic skin response and so forth. Anyway, what, what he found, he, so he did this research over 20 or 30 years, and he found that there were, he, he actually said that he could predict with 93% accuracy on meeting a couple and spending seven minutes with them, he could, he could know whether they'd be together in three years. <laughs> He made that prediction because he looked just to a very few cues. And one of them was how they dealt with conflicts. And he found that there were three broad ways of dealing with conflict. One was avoidant, where people... And, you, and his, his finding was you could have very stable relationships over a long time based on each of these styles. You could have very stable... That doesn't mean deep or good, it just means stable. But you could have stable relationships that, in which everyone was conflict-avoidant. You could also have very stable relationships in which people were tried to take the other's perspective. He called these empathic res- uh, relationships. People tried to take the perspective of the other. And then, and then the third kind was uh, confrontational 
relationships where people just had these big fights. And he found that each of the styles was perfectly fine for, for stable and basically loving relationships. What was key, he found, was that, and this was his empirical research, he said there has to be at least a five-to-one ratio, at least over the long haul, of pleasant to unpleasant experiences. This was his finding, whether, you know, whether this would be the same if we studied uh, people at Spirit Rocks, that's an open question, but this is what he found. He said that, he said that um, you could have, the, so the avoidant people, they might have you know, um, 10 interactions of which, uh, or they might have 10 interactions of which uh, nine were positive and one was unpleasant. They, but actually, maybe not that much contact. The confrontational people, it might look like they're having a bad thing happening. They would have like 100, you know, let's say 120 interactions, and 20 of them would be fights. But then, uh, you know, 100 of them would be these great connections. And it, on the surface, it would look like, oh my God, they're having 20 fights, whereas these other people, they just have one mild word. <laughs> but because there's actually more of the positive happening, it's a stable relationship. And then the empathic were kind of in the middle, not quite so. So they might have, you know, whatever, 30 good experiences and six difficult ones. And kind of in the and they all were stable. So there are these different styles. It's an interesting finding, isn't it? And so, um, so there are these different ways of working with the situation. But what, you know, if we choose to Um, use the, as it were, ways of speaking and working with conflict, that is the optimal. But often we find that with people with whom we're opposed, that's not possible, right? Sometimes we find that the person with whom I'm in conflict doesn't want to talk with me, right? Or maybe maybe what we can do together is very limited. Or maybe I'm in an organization where there's no commitment at all to even talking about our speech, or how we work with conflicts, which is probably more the norm than not the norm. And so, so we can understand both the ideal, and then we can say, uh, well, how might I work with the situation where, where I'm far from the ideal? And I think what, the, what, what I find is that we can always do very significant work, whatever the situation. That's, you know, so even if the other person doesn't even want to talk with you, there's a lot of work that we can do here. And so um, naming the different pieces can be helpful because it might, we might find out, well, in, this, like in my situation that I was describing, at least in my mind at that time, it was, I didn't really think I could really directly talk with him, but I could still do a tremendous amount of inner work. And it actually, my inner work had an effect on the interaction, even though I couldn't talk directly. It didn't seem possible for me to really approach it, you know, again. Maybe in many situations one can talk directly and say, well, how, how should we be with each other? So there are these, what I've identified are these five, as it were, inner ways of working. And then that's the first one through five. And then number six would be a way, uh, would sort of bring together a number of ways of working more interactively. So I'll just go briefly through the first five. The first is that we actually go into the situation thinking that we might learn something from the situation. We might learn something from the interaction. What's our normal way of being with an opposition, particularly where it's sort of dualistic and has some friction? It's usually to think that uh, I'm just basically being a good person and this person is messing up my peace, (laughs) or some, some version of that. There's some dualism there, and we what we most want is for, you know, as, um, as my sister sometimes says, be a better person. <laughs> we want the other person somehow to get it together so we can go on with our lives and not have this hassle. Now, I'm exaggerating a little bit, but, but uh, the first step of this practice is to say, might I learn so- can I learn something from the situation? I quoted last time uh, Shanti Deva from the 8th century who says, what, like a, a treasure appearing unbidden in my house, so should I look upon my enemy, for my enemy helps me with my conduct of awakening. Different perspective than we usually have. So, so going in saying, what can I learn from the situation? Can I learn something? 
you know, that not to take, as it were, the other person as simply a problem. Big step. Secondly, then, a series of reflections, and we could go into these in great length, and this was somewhat inspired by the work of Gandhi and King, who approached their opponents, this is on a larger collective scale, as potential friends. Gandhi looked at the British as who were in many ways oppressing and, and of course, killing people. He looked upon them as a potential friend, as did in some ways Martin Luther King, even with the, you know, even with the worst Southern racist, he looked upon them as potential friends and he would ask, and so we can ask these questions that can somehow ease the dualism somewhat. We can ask a series of questions and actually reflect on them at some length. What might I learn in this situation from this interaction? We can ask, is, you know, how might I conceive of us actually being friends in the long run? And I, you may have had this experience, but sometimes people with whom I've had significant friction, and we've actually, in, in cases I'm thinking of, we have actually dealt with it, it makes the connection much deeper. If we've come through a difficulty and, and been able to work with it, it, it creates a bonding. So there's actually something there to, to reflect on. We can also reflect on how the antagonism or the hatred or the duality never really um, solves anything. You know, reflecting on the Buddha saying, hatred never ends by hatred. Hatred only ends by love. This is an ancient teaching, he says. Sometimes we can look and reflect on the way that, you know, this occurred to me in in the context of an organization. We can reflect on how we're both at the mercy of larger forces than ourselves. That there's a system of causes and effects that we find ourselves in. And sometimes reflecting on that can ease the dualism. We can reflect on how we're both sometimes suffering. To see the person with whom I'm struggling with as also suffering, as also a human being, can again ease things, can be very, very helpful. We can look at the ways that we might exaggerate. Does anyone exaggerate with people with whom you're in conflict? Do you just seize on... Does anyone... That, we, that there's this funny way that we are actually totally irrational, illogical. We just say, this person is arrogant. End of the story. I'm good. I mean, it's... And, we, and many of us have actually have degrees from college. And we still, we still, we still have these thoughts, you know. That, that it's, it's very... I think, I think the laughter indicates that, we, that there's some... Basically what happens in conflicts, we seem to regress, don't we? We regress to very, very early levels where it's like, me good, you bad. <laughs> Something like that. And it, it's actually, it can, it, there's actually a somatic dimension to it. It's like a shock to the system, right? And that actually, so we're, we're, it's not just a matter of reflecting, because it's actually, this is actually deep in our, in our being that we get into these conflicts. So it's, it, I'm not saying, you know, sort of looking at us as if we're somehow shouldn't regress. It just is what happens. You know, and it, but it's good to understand that. The third step, then, is to actually look very carefully at what we actually experience. And the insight here is that, it's kind of a, for me it was a startling one when I first had it, was that we tend to think that the cause of my problems is the other person. And we don't really look carefully at our experience. When we look carefully at our experience, we see that what is difficult is not so much the other person, but the fact that I'm having difficult experiences with the other person. I'm having frustration, anger, impatience, uh, fear, and so forth. And so, not to say that there's not responsibility on both sides, but in some way there's a piece of it that we tend to overlook, which is that this is at least in part a question of how do I deal with anger, her frustration, her impatience, her fear. In other words, there's a big piece that we can actually explore. And this is, of course, where a lot of the learning comes in. We can actually see that we might learn something. And certainly, when in the example I gave, I was learning something which was felt quite profound about how to deal with someone, how to be with someone who wasn't listening to me. My usual pattern, which I, which I found when I looked more deeply, which I wasn't really aware of, was that when someone doesn't listen to me, I think this is a bad, immature person, and I withdraw 
emotionally to a, to a stance of distanced moral superiority. There were a lot of words there, but it's quite it's quite common. <laughs> it's quite it's quite common. I think many of us do that. And this is what I found. This is really the fourth step. That as I brought mindfulness to the situation, I could start to see that I was doing this. And in this fourth internal step, we study the situation. And in my case, it really benefited by the fact that I had to do this every two weeks for two years. There was a kind of a discipline. I also had a mentor who was guiding me and saying, look really carefully at what's happening when you're in that situation. And we'll start to uncover what the patterns are. We can start to see, and this is, again, this is sort of half of the puzzle, we can start to see that the anger, frustration, impatience, and so on, is linked with ways that we become reactive. And we can study those. And the invitation is to study them in great depth. I think that so important a part of our spiritual practice, of what we do here, is to become very sophisticated experts on the patterns of our own reactivity. You may have come to Spirit Rock for bliss, happiness, (laughs) developing a deeply loving heart, and that is part of it. But what's probably not so much in the promotional material (laughs) is the fact that a large part of what we do is study really closely how we become reactive. I don't know how good advertising that would be, would it? Come, study your reactive patterns with other reactive people. <laughs> you know, but, but in actual fact, that's what we do. And, it's <laughs> and again, it's maybe, it's, maybe that's the intermediate promotional material. <laughs> no, maybe it's not what gets people in the door, but, but it's, it's actually really significant. It's what we have to do, and, it's, um, and I think the humor plays a big role. We have to, there, there is, you know, you know, I mean, if, so, if you had told someone, you know, in, in your life, what do you, well, I come on Wednesday mornings and we learn better how to see how, how reactive we are. You know, we learn, we learn better. I mean, it's, it, would, it has an aspect of humor, but it's actually incredibly significant because it's the reactivity, particularly the kind that has unconscious roots and that's compulsive, that locks us in, basically locks us in our suffering, as we were seeing when we were looking at the Four Noble Truths. And so this fourth step here is very, very powerful. The fifth step is, and these are all, in a sense, happening all the time. It's not like you do the first and then get to the second and third and fourth, but we can see them as all, all of them are important. The fifth is a more indirect approach. And I, as, as I practice more, I've come to see that, that in a way there's the mindfulness, there's the deep looking at our patterns of reactivity, but there's also a kind of complementary practice where we more go to the beauty, the kindness, the joy, the love. And that complementarity is really important, I think. And we can ask ourselves, am I imbalanced one way or the other? And ask, because in, in doing this kind of practice with conflicts, with opponents, with enemies, it's also important to open the heart. If we were just looking at reactivity, it can get a little mm, tiresome at times. And, and so this, this uh, balance of doing the work with the heart is really crucial. And this, this would be to work with developing loving-kindness. Sometimes, sometimes it can be seen as shifting the energy, shifting more towards joy. You know, I, was, I was listening to um, Michael Mead a few days ago, who's a, a teacher from Washington State who does, does beautiful work with um, conflict and works a lot with uh, teenagers in gangs and in trouble. And he was saying how, for in his experience, the greatest antidote to fear is beauty, is contemplating beauty. So I think that fits in this fifth step. It's like bringing one's attention to cultivating the, the, the open heart of joy, of love, of forgiveness, sometimes in relationship to the opponent. So these first five steps are ones that we can do whatever's happening. Whether there's an agreement with others to work together with conflicts, we can always do these first five. And and in a sense, that means that whatever's happening, we always have options and we always have tools. Now, what I've brought under the sixth step, practicing externally, here it brings in 
we might say, skillful means of how to work with speech, communication, and conflict. And we could say a lot more. We could spend, we could spend weeks just unpacking the different ways to work with speech and communication and conflict and to look at the different dimensions of it. So here I just want to mention a few things. We have the resources from the Buddhist tradition of, of wise speech, which, which we've, we talk about quite often these Wednesday mornings that we can work, for example, with guidelines. And these can also help us in our speech. We can work with the guidelines of what I have on this handout as truthfulness, helpfulness, kindness, and appropriateness. That we can make a commitment to working with these guidelines in our speech. And again, that this isn't so much an interactive process, but we can consciously work with how we speak. We can say, I'm going to be truthful. I'm going to not go into not being truthful. I'm going to take that as a kind of discipline. But then we can also complement that by saying, because I can often, you know, we can often be very, very truthful with people with whom we're in conflict, but not at all be interested in being helpful or kind. Truth can be a hammer, right? (laughs) We can hammer people with truth. So truth by itself doesn't guide us in our speech. We need also these other guidelines of helpfulness and kindness. And yet we can also be truthful, very helpful, and kind, and have bad timing. (laughs) And so this last one is, again, very helpful to fill it out, that we we need to look at uh, how we can have all of these qualities present when we speak. So I'm, I'm condensing a lot of material that sometimes we take a whole morning on, just on those four themes, but I wanted to especially since we sometimes deal with it, I wanted to mention those. And then I think I want to end with just saying a little bit about another discipline, uh, working with conflicts, that's being very careful with our speech. And I was thinking of, uh, there's some other tools of working with conflict which have been really important to me that I think I can bring in maybe another time. I'll probably just mention them really briefly because there's some very, very skillful ways of working with conflict. And I think the main spirit of these ways of working with conflict and working with speech is to see if we can use um, language and see if we can approach conflict in a way which doesn't maintain the duality between myself and the other person. In the very way I speak, in the very way I approach communication, in the very way I approach conflict. Another way to say that is we take what we would call in Buddhist language a non-dualistic approach to the opponent. In other words, we have formed a kind of dualism, but we use tools that, as it were, undermine that dualism, that bring about more of a sense of connection. So, two brief examples. The discipline called nonviolent communication, and how many people are familiar with that? So, about half. Well, that's great. And we'll be, again, I'll be co-leading a retreat in September where we'll look into uh, using speech and communication in a five-day retreat. But there's been a, a set of tools developed which can be very, very helpful in which we use our speech in a way that doesn't, as it were, put the other person on the defensive. The main way of doing that is speaking more about our own experience and being very careful about making judgments about the other. Judgment, you know, we've sometimes looked at judgments these Wednesday mornings. We know that when, when I receive a judgment, I, it creates some shock, doesn't it? It creates some shock in myself. And so the heart of this um, nonviolent communication is speaking in a way which, which refers more to my own experience in a way that doesn't use the language of blaming and judgment, but still is quite honest and direct about what I'm experiencing. So Marshall Rosenberg, who developed this, and this is just the the basic skeleton of the approach, he said there's a way of speaking in which I can use more or less four steps that refer to my own experience in which I don't be nicey-nicey and really maintain what's important for me but I do so in a way which doesn't tend to put the other person on the defensive. That this can be a very skillful way of working with situations. So he talks about first somehow referring in a very neutral way to what happened. So in the example that I gave, which was an uh, an experience where maybe within an organization 
some people made a decision without consulting with me. You know, and if I would be, you know, uh, not framing my language carefully, I would I would tend to blame people and say, "You did this. You did that. You know, you're you know, you're bad." Basically, is <laughs> the message they're getting. So here, on the first step, I try to frame what's happened fairly neutrally. So in the example I have, when you and the others made the decision without asking me for my views. Now, that may have a little bit of edge, but it's a fairly neutral way of speaking. So it, or it might be that when you said this to me, or when you did this. But there's, there, the practice in this discipline is to find skillful ways that actually refer to what happened in a way that doesn't put the other person on the defensive. Using some kind of neutral language can be helpful. Secondly, then saying, um, this is what my feelings were. So you're not saying the other person is to blame. One is saying, in this, in this example, when you and the others made the decision to, without asking for my views, I was upset and angry. Now, some people may, again, be put on the defensive even by saying that, but many people would not. If one can say, sort of be what is sometimes said to be radically reflexive, talk about one's own experience, rather than blaming another person, it tends to both, it actually tends to create empathy. It tends to create connection because the other person's natural ability to know that you were suffering comes into play. And so it's a very, it's a very powerful step. And this is, that's probably the key step. The third step is, again, speaking of one's own personal experience, to say, to reflect on a value or a need that's important to oneself. So in this, in this example, I said, because it's important for me as a member of this organization to be consulted. It's not saying you were wrong. It's not saying this was horrible. It's not saying you're violating the very spirit of our organization. But it's saying it's important for me to have, a, to have my voice counted. Do you see the difference? So in all of these steps, we could imagine skillful and unskillful ways to say the same thing. And then in the fourth, there is a tie to action, which is to say, would you be willing to bring in my view on this matter and to agree that I would be consulted in the future? So it's an asking of a question. Of course, the person can say no. <laughs> you know, I wouldn't be willing to let you have a say, but, but it really it asks a question rather than makes a judgment. And so what, all of these steps, if you look at them, they tend to not use judgments or blame, number one. They tend to not use inflammatory language. They tend to refer directly to one's own experience in using language that doesn't use, as it were, objective language about the other. And then it tends to connect it with something that's important for oneself and with a future action. And so, again, this is a condensed presentation of this, but it offers a way of actually using language in what can be charged situations. And if you read the book by Marshall Rosenberg, you see how he applies this to very charged situations. He himself has brought these techniques into the Middle East, into major conflicts, and he finds that it can often have a tremendous success. Again, not always, but it's, it can be a tool that is using, that to me feels very continuous with our approach of mindfulness and loving-kindness and really questioning the duality of self and other or good person me, bad person out there, you. I think I'll stop here and we can, can, can reflect together some on this. And hopefully you've, you may have reflected on how you might bring tools like this, both the inner tools and the outer tools, into the very concrete situation you were imagining. So, we have a little bit of time. I want to thank you. <laughs> thank you for listening. And I want, we have a little bit of time to explore either any questions that have arisen or reports back from people about what you might have found in your own explorations with a, with a conflict or an opponent. Because this, really, this is really the nitty-gritty of bringing our practice into uh, our lives. Yes. Well, that, that's great. I mean, you can really, we can use different, my, my beloved opponent. Yes. <laughs> or, yeah, to see what, what, what language helps you, to, helps you to do this. If it says, 
you know, my difficult person, you know, like I think the Dalai Lama sometimes says about the Chinese, my friend, my enemy, <laughs> or something like that. But yeah, I think if opponent or enemy gets us off on the wrong foot, then, then by all means use other language. Yeah. But that's, that's great. Because uh, a lot of it is, is seeing the subtleties, but the main, the main thing is to do the inner work and then find the skillful ways, as it were, to translate the inner work into action. Which is, which is, I think that demands a lot of creativity, you know, of all of us. I think there is tremendous creativity that's sort of blossoming forth with this, and because there's not that much in the teachings of the Buddha about how you bring your practice into whatever raising children or or um, mm, dealing with conflicts. There's some, but there's not a huge amount. And I think that one of our contributions will be to really expand that. So there's, it's really an invitation to a lot of creativity here. Yeah. Reach the end of it. Yeah. And then things are solved. Yeah, so it's, it's um, everyone here, the, the comment that, um, yeah, this is, this is not a, a weekend training. <laughs> you know, the, that, the, for me, that, that two years was really important. And again, the spirit of our practice is not that you apply this once or twice and things get worked out, not, not that what you're saying, but that it's over and over again because the deep reactive patterns are partly unconscious. And it takes that constant looking just to notice things that we don't maybe notice at first. So we're doing a lot of things here. And yes, um, again, there are all sorts of different situations. Some we might, uh, you know, some of you may go home and talk to your partner show your partner these handouts, your family member these, <laughs> these handouts, and, and they might say, oh, yes, well, let's, yes, we'll, we'll both do it. And, and, uh, and, then, and, and that's one end of the spectrum, right? The other end of the spectrum is, you know, um, another person doesn't even want to talk about it and is not, not open, and the other person's reactive patterns, they seem to be, uh, as it were, a solid wall that was what I experienced in the example I gave. One thing that's interesting is that uh, this kind of practice, one explores the extent to which it takes two to tango, which is a very important insight. We tend to think, again, we tend to externalize the problem and think the problem is the other person. But it's very interesting. What I have found in my own experience is that when I have worked through my own reactivity to some extent... Well, it's, it's, you can see it in a simple way. Another person makes a sarcastic comment, and if I'm reactive, I keep the cycles going. And if I don't, if I'm not being reactive, to some extent, that sarcastic comment may not find its hook in me. And in a way, the sarcastic comment without me contributing gets very lonely. <laughs> if you know what I mean. And, and, and can actually, so there's actually a tremendous amount that can happen even without talking about things if one's not being reactive. Mm-hmm. It's an experiment that I'm sure many of us have done. You know, the nonviolent communication techniques are seen as one more technique. Or... By the other person? By the other person. Yeah. Um, how many people experience something like that? Mm-hmm. Yeah, that, um, again, that might be part of the other person's reactivity. And... And again, you just have to, you know, there, there are different ways to respond, I think. One, one would be just to look at how you become reactive with those comments, right? And that's, uh, and, and that, that's a, it's a very disparaging way. I mean, that person, it, I mean, it basically sounds like resistance, you know. But uh, um, I guess there would be, how would you respond to that? Yeah. Yeah. Well, it takes it takes time. You know, I mean, this is this is um, this is not beginning stuff. You know, it's beginning stuff just to have a little bit of mindfulness about one's knee pain. You know, and to and this presupposes, uh, I would say, an intermediate level of mindfulness. Mm-hmm. It's hard to do this without mindfulness being pretty well established. So maybe I should be clearer clearer about that. But it really is a way to extend, how do we extend the mindfulness to these difficult situations? Mm-hmm. Yeah. 
you know, there, there's the other point, which is that um, none, of, none of these tools are guaranteed to work with the other person. They're guaranteed to work with you if you apply them. <laughs> Not that we have, you know, guarantees here that we hand out, but, but in a way, um, I was reflecting on this because, for example, if you look, read Thich Nhat Hanh, you know, in some sense, um, I was thinking there's a distinction that was made by Michael Nagler, who founded the uh, Peace and Conflict Studies at, at Berkeley and is a scholar and practitioner of nonviolence. And he made a distinction between, he said that, in a way, this kind of um, practice, nonviolence, always works in the sense that it contributes to the situation, brings more care, awareness, love, and so forth. It always works in that sense, no matter what the circumstances. It doesn't always work in a conventional sense. So he distinguishes between working and then working in quotation marks. And he says, nonviolence always works, no quotation marks, but it doesn't always work. And that depends on the conditions. Mm-hmm. You know, if the other person has a solid wall that doesn't want to let anything in, well, it's just, you know, walls tend to stay the same, right? right? But, um, but in, in the sense of you doing your best, that, that's, that's a contribution. So I think that's important to see. These, th- there are conditions. There were people, you know, there were people who didn't want to listen to the Buddha, right? And, who, and so that, that's an important piece of this, that this is not guaranteed to produce results. The results depend on the conditions, right? Yeah, yeah. There's actually um, um, a chapter that I have in my book called Committed Action, Non-Attachment to Outcome. <laughs> that's the paradox, right? And it, it's a really hard one because part of what, part of what you will we all have to explore is what's our reactivity when we don't have the results we want. You know, when, I, when there's someone I really want to connect to and it's not working, again, I can see my reactivity, but can I, be in, can I really see what I'm feeling? Oh, I'm really sad about that. Because when we don't feel the sadness, we tend to go to the reactivity, the judging, and so forth. And so in those situations where we've tried it, it hasn't worked, then part of our practice is to just notice what we feel about that. And that can actually be quite important. Yeah. And the other piece might be... Yeah. Yeah, and the other, the other thing is that... Uh, uh, two, two pieces, and I think I'll close with these. Uh, one is that there's also, like you're saying you're sorry, you can actually feel your own sadness. And, and, connect, and that's really important, and we tend to underestimate it. And the other piece is, you know, we, we do want results, you know, and, and there's this paradox that we intend, we do our best to get results, but then in a way we, after doing our best, we, in a way, leave the results up to the condition. Sorry, so that, no, that's that, fine. That's the progress that I'm that's, And then that may have come directly from the way you reframed it. <clears throat> and the other thing to remember <clears throat> is that people often put up a wall and a show of resistance even when things are changing inside. And, we, and sometimes we can't always know what's happening. And I'll end with a story from my own experience. When I was, um, I was teaching at the University of Kentucky, and I worked with a lot of um, particularly young men from the mountains areas, from eastern Kentucky, a lot of whom were, had family in the coal, coal mines and industry. And we were, I remember we, at one point we were exploring, particularly one topic, uh, I think we were exploring animal rights <laughs> and vegetarianism, I think, uh, in an ethics class, right? Okay, that's a whole other story. But, <laughs> uh, but what, what, I had the benefit, the main tool that we used for the class, people kept journals. And I would ask them to write in their journals, and I gave them questions for their journals, and they would write in it every week. I had the benefit of reading those journals and comparing them with the public persona that was put out and the public face that was put out, and especially, you know, maybe more of an issue for men, I don't know, but for young men, that they, they felt a deep need as young men to be, we would say, macho and put out this, and they would consistently do this. They would, you know, they'd make jokes about what's, you know, we're going to have all these cows wandering around if everyone becomes vegetarian, and so forth. And they would, they would 
get into it, you know. And they would continually joke, and there wasn't the slightest sign of any change. I looked at their journals. Things were incredibly in ferment, and they were reflecting deeply and changing. They just didn't want to show it during the process. And that's really important to remember. Things can be changing, and we might not think we notice anything. That the process of change is quite mysterious, as, as by your story. So maybe that's a nice way to end, as sort of a, a bow to the mystery of transformation and the mystery of this work that we do and how it might be, how it might um, occur in the world. So let's end just with 30 seconds to, to reflect, reflecting on sitting quietly and reflecting on what might have been helpful. And on your own intentions that you want to take out of this morning. And so we offer the fruits of the morning for the, for the benefit of all, for the benefit of those who suffer and yearn for healing and transformation, including ourselves. Thank you. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.